VOCM presents Open Line. The opinions expressed on this show are not necessarily those of the station. And now your host, Patty Daly. Ooh, well, all right. Linda Swain in for Patty Daly on this uh, starkly different day, as Jerry Lynn just uh, pointed out. Starkly different morning from what we were looking at this time yesterday. It was... Wow, it was like night, wasn't it, Jerry Lynn, this Dark time of day? Dark and dreary. Dark and dreary. I even noticed like some of the street lights coming on and everything, but no, it's not the same today. It's one of those crisp, fallish days, and it's amazing, you know, going around hearing how many people love this type of weather. I'm a, I've got to be honest, I'm a bit of a summer person myself. Uh, but uh, I appreciate that people love the fall. Uh, so, yeah, it's, it's a beautiful early fall day out there. I do hope at some point today you are able to join us. Well, I'm sure there's a few people in Newfoundland and Labrador with a little added bounce in their step this morning following that news conference held in Quebec City yesterday that uh, I found very interesting, a very different type of feeling coming out of that than um, ones we've had in the past. Premier Francois Legault um, telling reporters at a news conference after a meeting of New England governors and Eastern Canadian premiers that uh, reaching a deal on the Upper Churchill is a top priority for Quebec. What he's indicating is that Quebec needs additional power. Uh, And they need it sooner rather than later. And this looks like our best chance at renegotiating the Upper Churchill contract that expires in 2041. We've had groups uh, formed on this in the past talking about the inequities of that um, flawed uh, deal for years, decades even, that we never had a... um, Uh, escalator clause or anything like that in that where we're making 0.2 cents on every kilowatt uh, hour of power generated compared to the up to 12 cents a kilowatt hour that Hydro-Quebec is reaping from that deal um, four decades, five decades onwards. So this looks like the best chance that we've had, and it's because, uh, so it seems, Quebec has come cap in hand, waiting uh, and asking that uh, we uh, look at that, willing to look at that contract to see if they can uh, glean more power from the upper Churchill. And some of what was said there yesterday, I feel, was um, very interesting indeed, and I'd like to hear what others have to say about it. Are we finally in the negotiating position we should have been back in the 1960s? Could we finally get the deal we should have had back in, what was 1968-69? When you think of the millions and millions of dollars that we spent trying to force a renegotiation through the courts, only to find ourselves now in this position is very interesting indeed. And Fury yesterday wouldn't say if some form of compensation for the Upper Churchill contract is part of ongoing talks. But when uh, pressed by reporters in Quebec City yesterday, his uh, statement to them was, show me the money. 
So uh, very interesting indeed. And we have a lot of people who have been uh, following this very closely over the years. I'd love to hear what uh, others have to say about it this morning. Municipalities weighing in, trying to find solutions to the province's housing shortage. MNL says municipal governments are looking for cooperation from the federal and provincial governments to work on solutions, and they need legislative reform to do so. MNL says current funding models have burdensome application requirements that exclude smaller municipalities. So we're hoping to hear from MNL this morning on that important issue and uh, see what kind of barriers are there for municipalities who are trying to create more housing in their communities. Paradise Parents, as you know, pushing for a high school for the town. For decades now, Paradise has been one of the fastest growing communities in the province, drawing young families, of course, with all of the, um, you know, um, suburban type um, homes that are being built there. So why wasn't a high school uh, part of that whole development process? It used to be one time when you built a neighborhood, you built all of the, you know, needed uh, amenities in a neighborhood, not just the houses. But it seems that uh, we kind of put the cart before the horse. We put the people in there and then no schools. So I'm not sure how those kinds of formulas are done. But why wasn't a high school part of that planning process before this? Uh, we spoke with MHA Paul Din yesterday and Kayla Quinlan, who formed a Facebook group rallying parents and families to push for a high school in the area. She was on uh, the VOCM morning show just a short while ago. I'd love to hear from other parents who want to chime in in on that uh, in the Paradise area, by all means, do give us a call. Uh, big break at the pumps this morning. We had a caller to uh, open line yesterday saying, you know, uh, gas just dropped significantly in Nova Scotia. Let's see what happens here. Anyway, last night, uh, the PUB uh, adjusted its um, uh, price setting formula and um, dropped it by uh, close to nine cents, 8.8 .8 cents a liter last night due to what it calls recent market activity. And this was raised on open line yesterday as well. I hadn't seen the news up until that point, but uh, the federal go government calling it uh, embarrassing, but it's some might say it's a little more than just embarrassing. Opposition parties calling on common speaker Anthony Rota to step down after he invited a man who fought for the Nazis to attend Friday's speech by Ukraine's president to the House of Commons on Friday. Rota stood in Parliament and said he was alone in response... Uh, he alone was responsible for inviting and rec recognizing Yaroslav Hunka, who's from his um, riding, saying he's deeply sorry he offended many with his gesture and remarks. NDP House Leader Peter Julian says uh, Rota's error brought disrepute to the House of Commons. He believes the sacred trust has been broken. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau says the incident is deeply embarrassing to Parliament and to all Canadians. So one of many, many, many things happening here this morning. Morning. Um, we are going to start the show this morning uh, with uh, Dave Callahan. Hello, Dave. Oh, he's gone. What happened to Dave? Um, oh, oh th and I just hung up on him. <laughs> Sorry. Dave, do call us back. I'll tell you what we're going to do. We're going to take a short break. And uh, when we come back, we hope to hear from you and many others as well. By all means, do give us a call. Here are the numbers. And we're back, and we're going to try this again now. Dave, sorry about that. Hey, not a problem. You know, this stuff goes on, right, in uh, the technical world. And anyway, it gets 
fixed and we're back again. We're back again. So what's on your mind this morning? Well, I got to tell you, up early this morning reading the the news and reading the question of the day and all this kind of thing and then hearing your preamble, um, I figured that one of the most important things that I had seen in in the past little while is about ready to materialize, that being the, I guess, invite by Premier uh, Francois Legault to revisit the Churchill deal. And I think that it comes with automatically great enthusiasm and it'll probably come with some view of hope of, you know, uh, the better deal. Actually, if you look at it, it's a deal that we kind of fought for in court, but we were denied when we kind of sought this exact same thing to happen with the air of of, of basically fairness uh, in mind. And let's just say that that's the past. We made an attempt to make that deal better for Newfoundlanders, especially at a time when we needed it. Now, the question of the day is, are we in a better position to renegotiate that deal now? Well, I would have to say yes to that, because if you look at this through the lens of now who's looking to revamp the deal, it would be Quebec coming back. And it's not really because, and and don't anybody get blindsided thinking that this is coming back now uh, with the the with the desire of fairness or, or or better playing as a partner of Canada, they're coming back now because they bloody well need this link, this, this power. Um, they're not coming back with any other reason, and we shouldn't treat it in any other fashion. What we should be doing is taking a very serious look at our pitch forward for Newfoundland as a greener and better place for us. Well, there's not too much going to be ever considered greener power than hydropower. We have the ability to be at the forefront of that and not be treated as somebody who's kind of held by the hand and brought along. We can lead and forefront that now, and it should be done in any negotiation that takes place with Quebec now to basically put together structure and ratify a deal that would implement change before 2041. It should include an all-party committee. This should not just be something that feathers the hat or the, uh, the uh, puts another uh, pin on the lapel of some liberal group only that goes out to negotiate this deal. Well, we, we, we should take the politics out of it altogether, shouldn't we? There yes. should be like negotiating teams, you know, made up of yes. uh, people, you know, with bigger brains than yours and mine, if you know what I mean. 100%. I totally agree. And people who are specialists in the field and know what they're talking about, everything from the cost of producing electricity to the revenues that are derived from it. We've already seen what happened in the last deal. I mean, we get like a fraction of a cent on the sale of the hydropower to Quebec, and they get like probably 8 to 11 cents, full cents, <laughs> uh, in, in, in profits and whatever. So, okay, let's just say that that is technically wasn't a great deal for us. 
Um, it is, it was what it was, and it is what it is right now. But looking forward, I don't think that this is something that should be played as a political toy or something as a vote garnering opportunity for anybody. And as you have said, depoliticize this. This is about generations far out from us. And I mean, I'm not as worried about, you know, what the benefits from this agreement would be for me and more so than I am for my, my son and my, and my hopeful grandchildren down the road. And most of these deals are very long term. So, they sh- as in in the, in the first one that was signed by Mr. Smallwood, and he'll be a lot of people would chastise him as the one that screwed up that deal. Well, there was a lot of people involved in that deal. It wasn't just J.R. Smallwood that put his ink on that paper that made that happen. It might have been a a good deal at the time, but with no escalator clause, it's simply you know over time, That's it simply right. made, made no sense anymore. No, it timed out. I mean, if it was great at the time and there was some immediate benefit, great, but it didn't take very long before that was weaned down to a, a instead of a full flow of just a mere trickle. But Newfoundland has had the ability sometimes to be its own best enemy when it comes to looking forward, utilizing our resources. And because we were caught in an agreement, that we couldn't even change in court, right down to to the fairness and, and heartfelt feelers on that agreement. Uh, I would not see this right now as anything other than uh, opportunity for us to go back and make this right. And it's not exactly something that I'm saying that we should not partner with Quebec with, because certainly we should. Well, but, obviously the onus now is on us. Yes. And it's on us to make that deal right, as you've alluded to, depoliticize it. Uh, as a matter of fact, as, as strongly as I feel that we shouldn't have things like electronic voting and this type of thing in the future, I also feel that there should be more involvement in certain aspects of our everyday lives that should be depoliticized. And it's probably what's led to the lack of respect and the lack of of trust in government. I mean, I remember years ago when a politician came to your town for a speaking engagement, didn't matter if they're in government or opposition or whatever, they were afforded immediate respect because of the roles that they served, this type of thing. Well, that's gone. If you look at most politicians now from federal levels right back, you never hear tell of them, you can't get them on the phone. The whole dynamic between the people and government has changed and it's time for governance governance to come back to hey what about we try to restore some of the respect and the trust of the people that are out there instead of the basic dominance and way forward and trying to impose what government wants on us they got to be reminded of the term public servant and that's right from the prime minister back public servant this yeah, is not a situation now where we should be dictated to either, and that yeah. we need all hands at the table to make a good deal for Newfoundland. Uh, Dave, I really appreciate your input this morning. We'll see what others have to say on this. Thanks. Yep, and I invite all politicians that are out there, one seeking the nomination for the Tory leader lead to, to get in on this, uh, our Premier Fury, 
and anybody that would be involved in this equation and not and not just to fight it in the house after a bad deal was made then nobody's to be held to account involve all parties in this discussion before it moves forward and make it something that's a decision of the people entirely not something that we're just seeing okay government is doing this and getting away with it that has to stop we need respect and we need some trust in government back dave callahan appreciate your call thank you Thank you so much. Take care. Uh, All right. Bye-bye. Your thoughts on what he's had to say? Give us a call by all means. Uh, Amy Cody with M&L is waiting on the line, but we're going to go first to uh, Matthew Crest on line six. Hello, Matthew. Hi, how are you? I'm good. How are you? Yeah, very well, thanks. I I wanted to chat about uh, uh, High School in Paradise, and I know a number of people have been talking about it. I think it's worth saying that Paradise is now the biggest uh, community in Newfoundland and Labrador outside of St. John's. Uh, It's now bigger than Mount Pearl, uh, and it's the fastest-growing community in Atlantic Canada. And uh, as a provincial government, I know the, the provincial government is looking for people like me, who clearly you can hear I'm not from the province, to come here and settle and contribute to the economy um, and create jobs. And as a parent, uh, I think it's essential that we have the services that we're paying taxes for. Uh, I live in Paradise. It's a great community to live in. um, But it doesn't make sense to me that there's no high school for my kids uh, when they get to high school level. Yeah, it it does. It boggles the mind, really. And I mean, uh, I don't know how long you've been in uh, the Paradise area, but I mean, that started getting built up, what, 20, 25 years ago? Uh, So how are we a quarter of a century on and still no high school in that area? It it boggles my mind as well. You know, if if you can consider what uh, an essential part of a community a school is, can you imagine us uh, having to ask the provincial government for a fire station? It wouldn't wouldn't happen. Uh, But we have a community, a young community, that's being bussed out to other places, uh, places which are overloaded. Uh, The the high schools in Mount Pearl are also being fed by Southlands, uh, which is growing rapidly. Um, It's not like those schools are going to be empty if we had to build a a high school in paradise. To me, it's just a no-brainer. So um, it's been interesting also talking to other parents and and I guess also non-parents to say, you know, we we really want a high school in paradise. And nobody has said, do you really? What for? I don't think you do. It just just seems so obvious to everybody. So I'm really hoping that in this year's budget cycle, the Premier and his cabinet see it the same way. So you, you feel obviously motivated enough to uh, call into the show today. Um, are you part of any groups sort of lobbying for this? Yes, there's a, a group of parents uh, that have formed a, a group called Paradise Needs a High School. Um, and we, we are very active. We uh, have the support of two MHAs uh, who are the MHAs for our area, um, which we're grateful for. Uh, we have uh, the support of some outside uh, organizations, which uh, I'm sure you'll hear about in time to come, and we'll be making some formal presentations to the provincial government. And it's definitely on our agenda that in the coming budget cycle, we want to see approval for a high school in paradise. Matthew Craig. Sorry, go on. We would definitely uh, encourage parents, both inside Paradise and in surrounding communities, write to your MHA, write to the Minister of Education and write to the, the Premier to say, this is what we need. Uh, we're a developing province uh, and, and let's come to the party. Matthew Crest, really appreciate your time this morning. Thank you very much. Thanks so much. All righty.
Bye-bye. Um, he's part of that group, Paradise Needs a High School. I'd like to hear from others in the area, if at all possible. Uh, we're going to go now to the president of Municipalities, Newfoundland and Labrador, Amy Cody. Hello. Hi, Linda. How are you? Good. Well, I see that uh, MNL put out a release yesterday uh, talking about these um, uh, grants that are available to municipalities and the like to help with, um, you know, meeting these, this housing need that we're seeing right across the country, as a matter of fact. Mm-hmm. But uh, there are uh, some legislative changes need to be made. What, what are you talking about? Well, what we're talking about is, you know, the the Housing Accelerator Fund, um, you know, is is a big deal for municipalities. It allows us to apply for an access funding that can help with the housing shortage and especially with affordable housing. The problem is our Municipalities Act uh, from 1999 is extremely outdated. Um, It's very prescriptive. And uh, basically, if it doesn't say in the act that we can do it, then we can't. Um, so we, you know, we've been working with the provincial government on revising that act. We are very hopeful, after many delays, that the act will pass in the House this fall. We can't stress enough the importance of the updated act passing this fall. Um, we've had continued meetings with the provincial government to, you know, let them know our concerns and to stress again the importance that we need the revised act, um, the Cities Act. City of St. John's and uh, Cornerbrook also need revisions. They will follow uh, once the Municipalities Act is uh, is passed. Um, so, you know, the City of St. John's has a little more autonomy uh, with when it comes to affordable housing. There are some provisions in the Cities Act that allow them to do affordable housing on their own. But uh, municipalities covered under the Municipalities Act are not. So those changes need to come. Um, once they come, then we can work on the other challenges that we're facing when it comes to affordable housing. So how would that legislative change uh, change how municipalities can operate in, in addressing this issue? Well, basically, I mean, in the Act right now, um, you know, there's... It, basically, it's, it's not in there about housing. Municipalities don't have the ability to create housing. There's also a clause in the Act that states that we there's a no-compete clause with a uh, private sector. So even if we had land, access to land, um, and the ability to be able to do a, you know, a housing project, so to speak, um, we would not be allowed to compete with the private sector. So, you know, that's a clause that's in there that is very uh, restrictive, um, and it's something that we need to address there as well. Right, because the city of St. John's has its own housing, but it has a separate act. That's right. That's absolutely right. They have the City of St. John's Act, which, again, is, you know, is outdated, heavily outdated, and needs some revisions. But at least in their current act, they have the ability to act on affordable housing. So uh, how would a, um, you know, you, you talked about this no compete clause, and I understand the reasons why that would, that kind of thing would be there. Um, but um, would you, would you be able to change that in any way or eliminate it altogether? What would you like to see? 
Well, I guess some of the things that we're looking for as well is there's challenges with Crown land. So municipalities don't necessarily want to compete with the private sector, but we need to be able to provide them with the land that they're looking for when it comes to them doing housing developments on their own. Um, you know, they can access, once we access the affordable housing funding, um, you know, we have to decide and, and determine what land do we have available? What can we offer to developers to entice them to come into our communities to do these housing developments? Um, so we all hear about the delays and, and the, the, you know, some of the issues with Crown lands, identifying Crown lands within the municipal boundaries. The, um, you know, the difficulties in getting approval for the use of Crown lands when it comes to economic development and housing. Um, the lack of clear titles um, is also a challenge that we face when it comes to Crown lands. So then on top of that, we have to talk about our infrastructure needs. So the municipalities, Newfoundland and Labrador office and our staff are constantly working with our members on um, asset management and developing their asset management plans so that as these developments come into our community, we're aware of the infrastructure needs, we're aware of the lifespans of our existing infrastructure, the capability of our existing infrastructure to, you know, to be able to incorporate new builds into our existing structure. So there's a whole bunch of challenges that come into play when we talk about addressing the, uh, the housing needs in our communities. The federal government and the provincial government are coming to municipalities to provide solutions and to help uh, find solutions to these issues. And we're always grateful to have a seat at the table. We need to make these programs accessible. Um, you know, there's a ton of funding that's available, but unfortunately, the application process is extensive and exhausting when it comes to the time necessary and the data necessary to complete these applications. So, when we work, like you, when we talk about our urban municipalities, a lot of those municipalities have the ability to. Uh, complete those applications, but speaking personally, I know the town of Grand Falls, Windsor, on several applications that we've applied for, I know the amount of time, even with the staff that we have available and the data that we have available, it's just all-consuming, and it takes people away from doing their everyday work to focus on these applications. So you can imagine what it's like for a small municipality under a thousand residents uh, with a part-time clerk to be able to pull the data, fill out the application, make sure all of the questions are answered, um, and just you know get through that process. And then the time, uh, you know, the time restrictions on these application processes as well. It's just extremely demanding. So we want to continue to have the conversations with the provincial and federal government on you know, how we can make this process easier, how is there assistance that can be provided to the smaller municipalities to help them complete these applications so that we can all work together to address this housing crisis. And is government open to all of these suggestions, do you think? 
Oh, absolutely. We have great working relationships with the provincial government and the federal government. We have had several conversations with uh, MP Sean Fraser uh, from the federal government, the minister there of um, housing and and, uh, infrastructure, and we're hopeful that he is going to be able to be in attendance at our MNL convention in October, October 25th to the 28th. He's been in correspondence with our office. Hopefully he he can make that work and fit that into his schedule. We have sessions um, at our conference to talk about affordable housing needs and how to address uh, some of the problems and find solutions. We're constantly talking to our members on that um, and bringing that information back to, you know, our um, the Minister of Municipal and Provincial Affairs and as well as the Minister of uh, transportation and infrastructure within the provincial government. So, again, you know, great working relationships. Um, The conversations are happening constantly. The big barrier right now, what we're really focusing on, is the Municipalities Act and the Cities Act, getting them updated and passed through the House this fall. We really can't afford any more delays when it comes to that. Amy, Cody, I really appreciate your time on this. Thank you so much. Thank you, Linda. I always appreciate the opportunity to talk. Alrighty. Have a great day. You too. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. And what a rollicking start to the show. Uh, That or anything else that you'd like to speak about uh, this morning, by all means, do give us a call. Here are the numbers. Your voice in Newfoundland and Labrador's biggest conversation. If you want to know what's happening in your province, tune in to Open Line every day. Have your say weekday morning starting at 9 a.m. on Open Line with Patty Daly on your VOCM. And we're back on VOCM Open Line. We're going to go now to Dan Rubin. Hello, Dan. Hey, good morning, Linda. How are you this morning? Oh, a bit busy. I just came back from uh, an author tour in Western Canada for uh, promoting uh, the book that Boulder has published, a garden book called Sun, Seed, and Soil. So I'm a little bit jet-lagged, but other than that, I'm fine. Thank you. God love you. So uh, how's the book doing? The book's doing quite well, and uh, we've had the official launch, uh, which was so much fun. And I just keep getting a lot of uh, interest from people, of course, because everybody wants to grow their own food, you know? So I'm calling in this morning to invite your listeners to a workshop. It's the first workshop, live workshop, that I've been able to uh, offer publicly since before COVID. Up to then, I was doing a regular spring event uh, at various places called Creating the Year-Round Garden, uh, basically tips and techniques for growing your own food, flowers, and herbs. And at the invitation of uh, the town of CBS, they're having an event coming up called Savor CBS. Avalon Homesteading, which is out in uh, Foxtrap, has invited me to come out and do the workshop. So I will be doing that this Saturday. It's a full-day session comes with a home-cooked lunch, and it's all about building raised beds, planting things that it might seem like a strange time of year to be doing this, but the fall is actually a great time for preparing your garden, uh, building, clearing away things, and you know, ordering seeds, all of that. So that workshop will be this Saturday, September 30th, and anybody who's interested and wants to register for it can email me at secondstage at hotmail.com. That's why I'm calling in this morning. 
How are you? Second stage at hotmail.com. Yeah, for, it's, the, it's, the, it's the old guy's email address. Right? Uh, gotcha, gotcha. So uh, what kind of a season did we have? It seemed to me that, you know, uh, we had a lot of conditions that were absolutely right, at least in this part of the province. We had warm temperatures, a nice mix yeah. of sun and rain, um, a lot of rain, as a matter of fact. Uh, I know my lawn loved it. Uh, yeah. What about the gardens? It was a strange year, to be to be honest. Uh, every year is different, of course, and you never quite know what the roll of the dice will bring. But this year, we did have a lot of cold at times that persisted. That slowed things down a bit. I've heard this from actually gardeners and growers and farmers right across the country recently that um, it was a late year. It was Everything was pushed two weeks to a month late. I just harvested garlic and onions and I've got a good crop of carrots it's still in the ground and a lot of berries and fruit but um it was an odd year that's how I would describe it it was January I think everybody was referring exactly. to it as uh, very late forget once the weather turns warm but it was it was a strange year yeah yeah and I noticed myself in my garden not a lot of things uh, were thriving as they should the flowers did well the vegetables not so much yes uh, that's that's my observation as well. I'm still looking out at flowers growing and pots on our deck, and and uh, some things did really well, um, but um, others were stretched, I guess, a bit, yeah, by the weather. I had a lot of trouble with carrots this year. I'm not sure why. Yeah, um, it could be soil fertility. We'll talk a lot about that at the workshop, along with uh, ways to protect your plants from cold and weather, but. You know that uh, things that you grow use up the nutrients in the soil, especially the micronutrients. So um, adding stuff, adding compost, maple leaves, seaweed, manure, that kind of thing really uh, makes a difference because year by year, the carrots and the other things, well, they, they suck up the nutrients, right? I don't know if uh, you want to give this all away because <laughs> you do have this workshop coming up. But yeah. um, when you're when you're collecting this compost, let's say leaves, for instance, because we're going to soon start to see that. Do you just lay yeah. it on top of your bed or do you mix it into the Absolutely. soil or what? Well, there's a big change going on in gardening and in uh, in in food production these days that people may have heard about called regenerative agriculture. What we've discovered is that there's things living in the soil, many, many things, billions of bits of life, uh, insects and arachnids and worms. And when you dig, you you evict them, you disrupt them. So layering on top is uh, the way to go. And you can do that with all kinds of materials, compost for sure, uh, manure, seaweed. Layer it on top. Some people call it the lasagna method where you layer on top. To feed the soil because all of that, if you leave the living things in the soil, soil is alive. Uh, break that stuff down and it becomes a time release fertilizer. So, layer on top is the way to go. Ah, that would explain a lot. Um, and then, by yeah. doing that, you're also choking out the weeds because they need the sunlight to sprout and so it acts as mulch. Brilliant. So just layer that uh, stuff on top and then put soil on top of that? Yes. Uh, all the, 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 the soil that comes out of your pots or containers can go as a second layer. Uh, the maple leaves, when they fall, are rich with nutrients. You know what they call the maple leaves at the Botanical Garden on Mount Sinai? I'd love to hear it.
black gold. There you go. Call it black gold, and they mulch it with it. They they chop it up with a mower, and then they compost it, and all that really gorgeous soil you see when you walk around at the botanical garden. That's all maple leaves that had been composted. Well, Dan, I'm sure there's going to be an awful lot of people interested in this uh, workshop that you have uh, at C- in CBS on Saturday. If you're interested, reach out to Dan at secondstage at hotmail.com. Yeah, there is limited space there, but we have a few spaces still available. Uh, it's a lovely place, Avalon Homesteading, where they have uh, gardens and beekeeping equipment and all sort of stuff. And I'm just really excited. It's been years since I've been able to do the face-to-face thing with people, and I'm, I'm always excited to, to share what I'm, I'm learning with people, and I always learn so much from and, them. And answer lots of questions, no doubt. Happy to do so. Uh, and how's, uh, where can people pick up the book? The book is available in local bookstores. We're still waiting to get it into chapters, but Elaine's Books, Downtown has it, Wild Things has it, uh, Murray's Garden Center has copies, um, and um, Holland Nursery on Torbay Road currently has copies of the book. And the name of the book, if people ask me later? It's called Sun, Seed, and Soil, Tips and Techniques for a Northern Garden, and it's published by Boulder brilliant. Uh, Dan, all the best and uh, good luck with the workshop the weekend. It was very interesting to hear about the discussion about municipalities. You really should have a talk with Michael Murray because in the revision of the Municipalities Act, one of the things that needs to change is to enshrine people's right to grow food. In a lot of municipalities, a whole tangle of regulations are preventing people from having gardens and greenhouses, finding them or charging fees for what should be a normal home activity, including chickens in the backyard. And uh, there's a declaration, a food rights declaration issued by the Killick Coast Agricultural Group that Michael Murray heads, and that should be on people's radar now, too at the municipalities level. I'll just put that poke in before I go. No, absolutely. It's been a huge conversation, as we all know, especially when it comes to livestock and the like. Uh, So, I mean, if we're talking about food security, people have to be able to do what they can, especially if they have the land to do it, uh, to grow their own food. There's thousands of gardeners out there and people. uh, I'm also uh, leading a project for Food Producers Forum. We have 14 sites right across the island and up the Labrador coast where we're creating food hubs and your listeners may know that the Killick Coast Food Hub is a distribution scheme that's online where you can order food uh, including meat and baked goods and vegetables from local producers and pick them up or have them delivered. Uh, That's the Killick Coast Food Hub but Michael Murray is the guy to talk to about the regulations because people are literally across the province being prevented from growing their own food and we need to change that uh, clean clean out the nest as it were dan rubin a pleasure as always thank you so much thank you linda have a great day hey you too bye bye uh when we come back after the break we got a number of people waiting in the line uh, we're going to talk about uh, wind energy on the west coast uh, uh mental health and global day this is Open line on VOCM. Here are the numbers to call. And we're going to go now to Brenda Kitchen. She's with the Southwest Coast Alliance. Hello, Brenda. Hi, good morning. Thank you so much for having us. <laughs> well, thanks for joining us on the show. What's on your mind this morning? Well, 
we, um, there's a group of concerned citizens over here on the southwest coast, and we've come together to form an alliance, and we are sponsoring a campaign, and it's called Take a Stand for Newfoundland. We're just really concerned about all the different industry coming here, like the wind energy, and our campaign is focusing on asking our government to please take a six-month pause just so we can take our catch our breath and really have a good look at what's happening and the impacts it could have on our water. People are really worried about the water. So what would a six-month pause achieve? What would you hope to accomplish in that period of time? Well, we're asking for a couple of things, but one of them is, like, it's really good that these companies are doing environmental impact studies, but every company is doing their own individual. And, like, over here on the southwest coast, we got the wind energy, the hydrogen ammonia plant, the salmon farms. We got them exploring salt mines for hydrogen storage, and these salt mines are directly under communities, like residences. So what we would really want is something called a cumulative effects assessment, and this will look at all the industry that's happening in the one area and what the impact would have on our water, because right now, it feels like nobody's like really talking to us and everything is in a big rush to move forward and uh, like people are really they're scared and uh, and they don't know what's going on so we just want to slow things down get an assessment done to see how all of this is going to impact water which is our most important resource and then the other really important thing we're asking for and we're going to call it meaningful consultation because I don't, like, the public consultation that the government had in place was really just a one-sided presentation from the wind energy companies. That's not, that's not good consultation. So we're not accepting that. What we need is what we're going to call meaningful consultation, where we can sit down with our government representatives to really talk about the projects express our concerns so they can get answered because right now we're just being ignored and being ignored frightens people it it makes people really nervous and there's no need for it so we're going to try to do something about that and we have a petition and we're launching it across the entire province and we actually got pickup in port of basque south branch colebrook the port of port peninsula harbour grace south and we are taken at the St. John's. So we'll be in St. John's for two weeks with the petition, and we're going to be working really closely with Dennis O'Keefe, who feels the same way we do, that this is just being rushed through, and, and the people are being ignored, and it's time to just take a pause and really look at what we're doing here. What do you think, Linda? So uh, tell me a little bit more about this concept of a, a cumulative effects assessment. Is that uh, something that, um, is there a precedent for that? You know, is that the kind of thing, or is this something that you guys have come up with? Well, you know, there's a beautiful interview that Chief Byron Alexander and uh, Jasmine Jesso does. They're with the Indian Head First Nations Band. And they talk in great deal about the cumulative effects assessment. And this is something that they'd also like to see. 
because individually all these projects might look fine on paper but in Stephenville Crossing they're already having concerns with their water already and we don't even have wind energy on the ground yet but what they do have is a salmon farm which is demanding or requesting sorry double the amount of water for their upcoming year but they already got people losing water in the crossing and and now even the work camp the 1,500 people work camp that they're bringing world energy wants to bring to Stephenville that's also going to get hooked in on the city water like, it's, there's nothing looking at, there's no studies happening to look at all the combined industry. And that's what a cumulative effects assessment would do. Look at the combined industry and see the effects it would have on the water, but could also look at the combined effects on our wildlife and our marine life. And Chief Byron Alexander, I, I was very lucky to attend a public meeting that is band hosted in Stephenville recently. And they are reaching out to people, uh, different people in his circles, to explore who could be available to do this assessment. We're just really concerned about the water. I mean, we got industry coming at us from all different sides. And the more we try to push for answers from the government and even the company World Energy GH2, it seems like the more we're being ignored. And and sometimes we're being lied to. We really are and being misled. And the people are seeing it and they're really worried about what's happening. And that's why we got the petition that we want to ask for this assessment to look at all that industry. Just we're not we're not fighting industry. We feel that Newfoundland can have it all. There's people over here on the southwest coast that believe that we can have a good deal with wind energy and still have responsible industry. But this company, World Energy GH2, they want us to put wind turbines, 600-foot wind turbines, within one kilometer of homes. And when we look at the maps and we measure what they put out, it's actually 600 meters and 700 meters. So this is an example of how we're being misled, and we're so, really worried. Yeah, naturally, uh, especially when you don't get the answers that you are looking for. Um, so what are the specific concerns about water? Are you afraid that, um, you know, with all of this added demand, it's going to draw down on existing surface water? Is that what you're worried about? Yes, because we're already seeing the demand now already draining the water systems. And then the other side of it, because I live, uh, personally, I live directly in, I live in Robinson's here in Bay St. George South, and we have a lot of salt mines. One of the biggest salt domes is in Fishels. And we're reading about plants that want to come and clear those mines out and store hydrogen ammonia. And we got residents here wondering, what does that mean? What will that mean to our water systems? And we got World Energy. They're only talking about two projects right now, but and that's on the Angle Mountains and in the Port of Port. But they've been approved for four wind farms, and one of them is in the Long Range Mountains. And the Long Range Mountains feeds directly into the Robinsons River and the Crabs River, and that's our water. So you know, there's there's concerns, yes, about the water running out and about the water getting to the point where it will not be drinkable. 
So we just want to pause. We just want to slow down. We think we can have it all if we got the right checks and balances in place. But it's just you're nobody it doesn't feel like anyone's listening to the people. We're over here. We're talking loud. Um, so this is our attempt to get louder. And really, Linda, this is this is important for everybody in the province because the other thing we're asking for is that we feel that these companies should have a, a decommissioning fund open immediately before they put boots on the ground. And the reason, one very simple reason, is I just want everybody to Google the fish sauce plant in St. Mary's Bay. And that is a real good example of what happens when you don't ask these companies to put money up front to take care of the environmental impacts that's going to be their afters. Because we're going to be going to the provincial taxpayers and the, and the federal government if we're the ones that's left to clean up these wind farms. If there's nothing in place before these companies start, we've already seen it happen in St. Mary's Bay with the fish sauce plant. So we, like the Southwest Coast Alliance feels that we can learn from previous mistakes and, and do better for Newfoundland and Labrador and all the people. But it got to start, we got to look at, it's just a mad rush forward and we're being bombarded. We got to take a pause, check our basics like the water, and talk to the people with meaningful consultation. And this decommissioning fund, everybody on the province should be concerned. That could be over 500 wind turbines. And if we don't have the money to, to clean it up and the company goes bankrupt or whatever could happen, it's probably just going to be graveyards. Yeah. yeah. Brenda, uh, we're uh, almost up to news time now, but uh, I really appreciate your call this morning. Well, I really appreciate Open Line because it feels like you guys really are for the people and uh, and letting us speak whatever our concerns are. So if anybody got any questions, they can email protectnl at outlook.com and they can find us on Facebook, ProtectNL. And thank you again for being there, Linda, and letting the people speak because we're really feeling like we're not being heard out here. ProtectNL at Outlook.com. Brenda Kitchen, really appreciate your time. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. All righty. Bye. Bye-bye. And Brenda Kitchen, of course, is with the Southwest Coast Alliance. Uh, well, we're up to news time. Uh, we'll, uh, we've got a couple of people waiting in the line. Um, and uh, what we'll do is we'll have to go to them after the news. But uh, if you were trying to get through the show earlier and the lines were blocked, now is your chance to give us a call. Please do so. Stay informed and have your say on the news of the day with your VOCM. Join Linda Swain weekday afternoons from 4 to 5 p.m. for an hour of talk and discussion with decision makers and listeners like you. News Talk on your VOCM. And we're back. Linda Swain in for Patty Daly, who is off today. And um, as I indicated earlier, if you had been trying to get through the show in the first hour, uh, you may have encountered a busy line. Now is your chance to do uh, to give us a call because we do have some lines open and there's lots and lots to talk about. Uh, details are coming uh, today on the province's flu and COVID vaccine program, which some people, of course, are uh, anxiously awaiting 
with um, reports that COVID cases are once again on the rise and uh, with this new um, variant that uh, is uh, even more virulent, I suppose, than others, uh, and not making people any sicker per se, but uh, always a concern when something can spread rather quickly because that gives it a better opportunity to mutate yet again. Uh, so we'll be watching that one very closely over the uh, coming uh, hour or so. Uh, Tom Davis is on the line. Hello, Tom. Good morning, Linda. How are you this morning? I'm doing pretty good. Thank you for asking. Thank you for having me on the show. I just want to start with a quick comment on the uh, price of electricity. Um, in my, my power bill says I'm paying around 13 cents a kilowatt hour. In Quebec, they play they pay 7.8 cents kilowatt hour, and you know it's it's important to realize there's a lot of pressure on Premier Legault as well to not have the same prices. And ours are obviously going to go up significantly starting next year when the Muskrat Falls uh, program pro- project has to start being reflected in our bills. And you know at some point we'll be paying 25 cents a kilowatt hour. At least that's what they say. That's what it costs to produce electricity at Muskrat Falls. So. Um, so these talks with Quebec come at a, a, a really critical juncture. Yeah, and we just need to realize that. Um, and the other thing to bear in mind, too, is that, that if you're in Labrador and you're in the interconnected system, that's not the isolated diesel system, but the interconnected, they're only, they're only paying 3.15 cents a kilowatt hour. So they're paying 420% less than we do. And the people in Quebec are paying 70% less than we do. Uh, but if you overlay that with the transition, uh, the climate change challenges, which I do want to discuss. Um, Quebec right now is leading the country in uh, adoption of EVs, electric vehicles, and um, 18.4% of all new vehicle sales in Quebec in the second quarter were were, were uh, EVs. Uh, so, so there's a lot of pressure on Premier Legault to be able to fill that. And, and in addition to that, Central Canada is trying to move away from natural gas which is one of the primary uh, heating, home heating and, and commercial heating sources up there, too. So those two things are, are – there's a lot of pressure on Premier Legault to be able to supply the domestic. And, uh, you know, we need to um, not be desperate, and we need to be courageous. So I, I want to echo uh, Dave's words from earlier and say to the Premier and to uh, Minister Parsons, um, we have to play the long game here. I realize that – Politicians are not encouraged, and probably ultimately we as the voters don't want them to play the long game. But Quebec does. They play the long game. They they play, and you can see in how they they uh, you know how they do their long-term plans and how they manipulate. They manipulated us back in the Upper Churchill deal originally, and they uh, they're going to try and do it again. So you know, I encourage them to be courageous, and, and maybe you don't get to have the win during your tenure as the minister or as the premier, but in the long run for the province of Newfoundland and Labrador, we have to, uh, we've got to play this as smartly as we possibly can. For sure. But now that's not the reason why you called. It is not. So yesterday was a global day on climate action. And this week is actually energy efficiency week in Newfoundland and Labrador. And I want to try and I want to try and have a conversation about that with you. Um, California last week. So so last week was um, climate change week in New York City, which is a big deal. And the U.N. also had big meetings during that time. And, and one of the things that California, which is actually the fifth largest economy in the world, 
next to U.S., China, Japan, and Germany, so a larger economy in Canada or UK or Russia or whatever countries you want to try and haul out of your head. Um, and they've just gone ahead and joined other jurisdictions, and they're suing um, five oil companies and their um, and their um, their their group, the American Petroleum Institute, basically claiming that they dece- that they've deceived the public and that they've for 70 years they've known the impacts. Their scientists have told them the impacts that burning of fossil fuels. Uh, would have on the planet, and they have internal memos. And ExxonMobil, in particular, there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of information that they have in their lawsuit that they've that they've hauled up. That you know, basically, you know, they've created misinformation, very similar to what the tobacco industry did. And uh, Puerto Rico was also suing oil companies as well for the, but they're using a little bit of a different method. They're basically claiming that it was racketeering. They're using the RICO Act. But, you know, he's, Governor Newsom spoke at the United Nations last week, and uh, and apparently it was a real change in tone because usually you hear politicians saying, oh, my goodness, it's, go-, you know, it's, it's bad and we're going to do what we can. But he came uh, stating the obvious that not only is California taking a leadership role, and they have for a long time, now they're they're putting their money where their mouth is, and they're uh, they're suing soon these organizations, and and hopefully um, that's going to send a message to other jurisdictions to join in it. And and he's calling it a fossil fuel crisis, and and I, I'd like to revise that and say it's a fossil fuel burning crisis. I mean, it, there's no debate that using fossil fuels to make plastic and a whole bunch of other very practical things that help uh, us conduct. Our affairs is important, but but it isn't necessary to take this very valuable resource and just burn it. Uh, and in most cases, not only to burn it, but to burn it in a, in a way that's really not that efficient. So, you know, put it in a, for example, a, a large SUV or a pickup truck and, and have one person driving back and forth to the grocery store to drive their kids to school is a good example of, of the type of waste. But that also includes things like getting on a cruise ship, which is a hugely polluting thing and, and sailing around the world. And so they've also California's also banning the sale of new gas powered vehicles by twenty thirty five. And Canada like California so California stated the obvious they're facing wildfires, droughts, heat waves, floods, tropical storms, which they don't generally see in California. And and just like, like us, we in Canada are seeing the same thing. Um hurricanes, you know, that seem to be just every Every year, maybe, maybe a couple of times a year, we're, we're, we're nervous about a hurricane that might hit Newfoundland or does hit Newfoundland and, or maybe transitions to a tropical storm like last year for Fiona. Also, they're, they're finding that the tornadoes are moving east because of the change in weather. They used to be in the unpopulated prairies. Now they're getting into Ontario and Quebec. East and uh, north. Correct. That's right. So, so the, you know, this is all real change, but, but also significant impacts for Canada. And and so, you know, with all that stuff, you know, the question is, you know, what can we do? You know, sticking our heads in the sand is obviously not going to work out very good for anybody, and it hasn't over the last 30 or 40 years. If you talk to people like David Suzuki, who's been banging this drum for a long, long time, you know, we really can't claim to really not know the difference, uh, although they're still very uh, intelligent and educated people who who will not accept man's role or human's role in this. Um, and And it's disappointing because you know you can't solve a problem if you have a significant number number of people saying there is no problem 
So, you know, what I'd like to discuss today, if we can, is, you know, just talk about some solutions, some practical things that Newfoundlanders Labradorians can do. In July, fuel sales were down 24% in Newfoundland, which is interesting. I don't know if how much of that is just a decreased price versus last July or how much it is actually people burning less gasoline. Um, so it'd be interesting to know if, you know, which it is. I couldn't really flesh that out. But, you know, with new vocabulary like weather bomb and atmospheric rivers and people all of a sudden paying attention to the fact that El Nino does mean something, um, you know, I think I think it's time for us to just to step it up and, and try and figure out if there's some practical things. It's like everything. If you if you build momentum, you start off with the easy things and then the more challenging things, you know, will hopefully follow. And I, and I do feel like I was involved in the um, – Fridays for Future March last uh, two Fridays ago, and you know the young people were and older people were marching, and it was you know it was encouraging. But you know again, it was only a small number of people compared to the to all of the, the province. So what, I, what you know what, I, what I'd like to look at is just you know how can we how can we reduce our greenhouse gases? I mean the province has set an ambitious goal, and the country is saying they're going to go down by forty five or fifty percent by twenty thirty. Well, it's only you know, almost only six years away. It's pretty dramatic considering we've been increasing our emissions. Um, but, you know, if we if we take greenhouse gases into, into account in everything that we do, so that anytime we burn fuel, I mean, I know a lot of people are converting their homes from oil and the government is converting some of its buildings from oil. Like That's very positive because when you're burning furnace oil, basically it's diesel and, and diesel pollutes more. There's more greenhouse gases in diesel than there is in gasoline. So that's a good step for a lot of people. Obviously, it makes financial sense to do it, but, you know, it's great when it's a win-win, especially now that there's carbon tax on furnace oil. Um, being a tourist at home is really good. And getting on an airplane whenever it can be avoided should be, and I think government and businesses should probably have to publish, like larger businesses should have to publish um, and justify when a politician or an employee gets on an airplane and goes anywhere. You know, could that have been done virtually? Was it necessary? I really think these are difficult things, but there was really no easy solution for air travel in the world. There's nothing really on the horizon that that replaces um, air travel, especially long distance air travel. Uh, and and you know, it's unfortunate. You know, even when you look at biofuels, it's you're still creating carbon dioxide, and and in a lot of cases, you've got you've got to grow crops to be able to create the bio. It's, biofuels, which then takes energy to do it. Natural certain, gas. Yeah. yeah, I mean, a lot of people talk about natural gas as being this great, you know, thing. I heard a gentleman on last week, I think with you, and he was saying that, it, like, there's no greenhouse gases in natural gas. Well, that actually, that actually isn't true. Uh, it's only 30% less na- greenhouse gases from natural gas than from burning gasoline, and only 50% less than coal. And that assumes there's no leakage. And so if there's 0.2% leakage of within the production, transportation, and consumption of natural gas, it is the same as coal, 0.2%. That's all. And when satellites fly over the Earth, they can see the leakage from everything, including um, heavy, you know, the tar sands or even just direct production of natural gas. And some some fields are up to 66% leakage. So so really, natural gas is not the solution. Of course, reducing the leakage is important, but Unfortunately, natural gas, which equals methane, is is up to 80 times 
as much a greenhouse gas as CO2 is. So so natural gas is not the solution. But if we just get into our own local homes, insulation and ceiling of homes and commercial buildings, like that's a starting point. It's fairly – there's no mechanical. There's not much maintenance once you do it. It's really good. Looking at everything is sustainable. Like, you know, everything we do is, is – does that make sense? Smaller vehicles. So if you can't afford an EV or can't get an EV, well, just choose a smaller vehicle. That has a couple of benefits. There's also the tires. Um, there's a lot of toxic toxicity from the tires. And they wear, when they wear out, people need to wonder, I wonder where all the where my tire went. Well, it went on the road, and then it got washed into a waterway and gets into the food bead and um, also less wear on roads, the smaller, the lighter a vehicle is, the less wear on the roads. And there's a role municipalities can play too, because when we have these developments, everything is, uh, you know, our entire world now is is based on road travel. Um, so, you know, when we look at the infrastructure that we have and um, where we place the amenities that we use the most frequently, uh, we went from like a neighborhood type concept where a lot of things were walkable to these, all right, we're going to put these developments here and we're going to put those developments there. And between the two, you got to get somehow between the two, if you know what I mean. So there's all kinds of roles we can play when it comes to uh, development and um, and how we put together our neighborhoods um, to you know reduce that you know I got to get in the in the car now and go up that far to get my milk. Increase increase population density. So like like you just said. So I mean ideally everything we need is within walking, biking, uh, or public transportation. And approaching that, you know, even garbage collection. Do we really need it every week? Because you know, I know it probably works really good for scheduling of staff, but like if we could do it every three weeks, like when we have strikes, all of a sudden magically, I know it's, it's you know, but people are producing less garbage and we need to encourage them to produce less garbage and to compost because, of course, everything that you, that's organic, and organic just means that it grows naturally somehow magically, um, if you put that in the landfill, it becomes methane, which we just talked about, natural gas, same. So, like, you know, we need to approach everything from the point of view of, Less, less, less. And, and and there's a cost to that. There's no debate. People's standard of living as when it comes to income has to drop. And nobody wants to hear it, but there's no math. There's no math way to have a sustainable situation in the big scheme of things without people making less money. But hence, if you look there's, the, all, all there's the, waste, the push and like, pull. There's the push and pull issue. Uh, right. Tom, yeah. we, we're going to have to leave it there because we're well past appreciate the break. Uh, okay. Really appreciate your time. Thank you very much. Take care. All righty. Bye-bye. Uh, we're going to take a short break. When we come back, we hope to hear from you. We have a few lines open. Now is your chance to give us a call. Linda Swain in for Patty Daly. We are going to go now to Glenn Royal. You're on the air. Hello, Glenn. Good morning, Linda. How are you doing this morning? I'm good. How are you? What's on your mind? Yeah. Uh, I want to take up the uh, the conversation of uh, the open letter I sent to Premier Fury and uh, Minister Osborne there almost a month ago, and to also have the conversation of an update from the government on the status of the All-Party Committee on Substance Use and Addiction, uh, wondering if the membership has been selected, if uh, the schedule has been put in place, terms of reference, uh, because I know when the minister made the announcement there back, I think, at the 1st of September, uh, he would say that he will want a report or some, some sort of document produced within about a six-month period at all. And at this point, I don't think there's been anything uh, brought out and I did lay out 10 action items uh, to the Premier, to the Minister, and to uh, several other uh, stakeholders with the City of St. John's and with the Government of Canada at all. 
I understand the letter is being reviewed by government sort of thing, but I think if we don't start to tackle some of the issues around the subsidy terms of health uh, immediately, I know some are going to take longer than others to do, but I think some of the immediate actions need to happen now because I have grave concerns coming into maybe a very cold winter, especially with the uh, Saudi Arabia taking off a number of barrels uh, from OPEC on the world market. And if we do have a cold winter, how many people are going to be challenged from the vantage point of not having enough food uh, to sustain themselves and other basic amenities or having enough heat uh, to keep themselves warm as we live in a northern climate. So what kind of immediate actions uh, do you think can be put in place? Uh, I think some of the, the thing around the food security piece really needs to be taken out because, I mean, you know, from your, your media and various other media about the state, a number of people utilizing food banks, and I think that's unsustainable. I think the government needs to do something for the most vulnerable that's in the community, you know, I mean, that includes the working poor, people probably that are on disabilities, that are on, on fixed incomes and pensions, even people that are on income support that are trying to come off, are trying to come off and, and probably eventually go back into the employment sector. Uh, because, I mean, you know, the dollars are not stretching. And I mean, every day as we go to, uh, you know, supermarkets and elsewhere, I mean, prices, I think you said there yesterday, Linda, you know, from one day to another, it just continues to go up. I mean, I think government has to start to take taxation off things that they can do because I don't know where this is going to end. It's going to end up with more people with mental illness and more people with addictions. And, I mean, those systems are overloaded and there's not enough professionals in that system because I think the system is the people that are working in there are getting quite burnt out because the caseloads are overloaded. Uh, Fair enough. Have you received any uh, response yet? Uh, all I've heard uh, from a couple of ministers, officials, is that it's being reviewed and there's a response forthcoming, including I'm looking for a meeting both with the Premier and the Health Minister and several other ministers, uh, along with a number of other concerned citizens, uh, that this, this needs to be addressed now because, uh, you know, government puts a lot of investments into industry and other areas, and that's all very important for economic growth for the province. But when you have so many people struggling and so many people that are working as people who I know that are running various food banks in this province. I mean, you have working professionals, well-to-do individuals that can't make ends meet due to the fact that the mortgage is going up because of interest rates with the Bank of Canada trying to cool this economy. I mean, I think it's it's there's something has to give here at all. And I mean, it's great that, you know, we're supporting what's going on over Ukraine with the war. But I mean, I think some of that money needs to be redirected back into this country at all, because it's great that, you know, we have the work about global uh, you know, safety that's going on. But I mean, when your own citizens are struggling to put food on the table, you know, pay their mortgages at all, uh, you know, try to keep their, their kids engaged in the community and not fall into the perils of, of addictions or mental illness and otherwise. Uh, I don't know. I mean, you know, I think like we all need to come to the table, but we need leadership from our government here provincially, nationally and locally. Uh, Glenn Royal, I really appreciate your time this morning. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Linda. You have a great day. You too. Bye-bye. And we're going to take a very short break. When we come back, we hope to hear from you. Start your day off right. Get the latest updates on news, traffic, and weather conditions, plus interviews with today's newsmakers, your go-to source before you get on the go. 5.30 to 9 a.m. weekdays, your VOCM mornings. 
And the RNC have called a news conference for early this afternoon, 1.30 at RNC headquarters with what they say is further information linked to the investigation of sexual violence on the Northeast Avalon. And they're referencing the uh, case involving um, uh, charges against Marcus Hicks, the uh, coach and teacher who is uh, facing now dozens of sex-related charges. So the RNC have called a news conference for 1.30 this afternoon uh, at the media center at RNC headquarters at, one th- uh, as I said, 1.30. Uh, VOCM News will be there and we'll have all the information on that as it becomes available. We are going now to uh, NDP leader Jim Din. Hello. Hello, Jim. Good morning, Linda. Thank you for having me on. No trouble. What's on your mind? I'm just calling now. I wanted to, uh, uh, I, I get, oh, no, I, I just wanted to tell, uh, promote a panel that we're hosting uh, tomorrow at the Legion, Branch 1 Legion on Black Marsh Road, and it's uh, entitled The Housing Crisis, a panel on housing insecurity, causes, consequences, and possible uh, solutions. So we have panelists Doug Pawson with uh, from End Homelessness St. John's, Hope Jameson, a former city councillor um, and who's been involved with housing herself, Javad Chowdhury, Nansu, um, and looking at it from certainly the um, you know the when you look at international students and students looking for a. Uh, places to live, and Laura Winters, who's with Stella Circle. Again, organizations involved with uh, with uh, ho- housing and homelessness. It'll be moderated by Dietra Walsh, and uh, she's with Municipalities NL. So we're hoping that doors open at 6.30. The discussion starts at 7, and we're hoping as many people who want to be there to talk about their, whether it's their own personal uh, experiences with uh, housing and homelessness and ho- housing insecurity or people who uh, have an interest or who have, uh, uh, you know, ha- have li- uh, have helped people who are um, who have faced it or any anything along those lines that where we can have a a discussion to carry on with uh, to keep uh, this issue in the media. I don't know. I don't think it needs much help. I think it's people are starting to tune into it, but possibly here uh, to ha- to hear the issues again to uh, maybe come up with some solutions that haven't been uh, um, uh, spoken about and also to I guess if nothing else to hear what uh, if there be those with lived experience those who uh, want to talk about what what it what it means to them I uh, it's only this yesterday that I got another email from a young gentleman who is watching his rent just gone up by $100, uh, but that doesn't seem much compared to the others. But as he said before this, he was insecure, food insecure during the second and fourth week of just about every month. Now it's going to get worse. And I listened to your discussion with Tom um, and uh, to Glenn, and housing is, to me, so tied up with everything from public transit and, and being able to access uh, housing, food, uh, stability in one's life, uh, a good mental health, you name it. it. It's so crucial, and yet I think uh, we're finding uh, my, my fear is that we're going to have people who are going to be sleeping in the rough this week, uh, this winter in St. John's, and it's already taking it happening across the province. So I, I think it's uh, important to have these kinds of discussions and 
important uh, to keep uh, the issue firmly in uh, in focus and making sure that government has got to do has got to take uh, has got to take some drastic actions to address it. So that's a panel discussion on uh, homelessness in uh, St. John's tomorrow, branch number, Royal Canadian Legion branch number one on Black Marsh Road. Uh, doors open at 6.30. Uh, discussion starts at 7. Yes. And everyone's welcome, I'm, I would imagine. You got it. And from there... for. Oh, every, everyone is welcome. Uh, it's uh, like I said. It, whatever perspective, I don't, uh, it's some. Uh, well, I'm hoping, if nothing else, you have, uh, if you have a variety of uh, people to discuss issues, uh, and to bring them. Per- you, you, we may come up with something uh, that that uh, that we'll bring forward. Uh, that we'll bring forward to government when the house is open. I should point out, Linda, that I've been a very uh, big on, uh, and our party's been big on non non market, not uh, non market community-based housing that's uh, basically is not profit driven there's a role for the profit uh, for the pro- private sector but I think in, in resolving some of the issues we're faced here um, we, we're going to need more of that and if we're looking if we're hoping to attract uh, in, in newcomers to this province then we've got to address this uh, as well because it's uh, you, if we want to grow our province then people have to uh, have to have a place to live uh, and if you're looking at the CMHC uh, uh, stats we're going to need another 60,000 homes over the next uh, six years uh, the next five years or so that uh, just to or six years just to get to, to try to, to to make up the deficit so we've got a, an enormous task ahead of us uh, certainly and i uh was uh, somebody oh, reached more, out to um, um, you know that uh, nor and i will have that discussion right on uh so uh, someone reached out to our newsroom last week indicating and um i've been trying to check and see if any of this is uh is in fact true but they were very concerned they were uh, at the um, um intake at a, a college the other day and there were two students who showed up there one of whom was expected the other was not both uh, from out of the country nowhere to live nowhere for them to go they were showing up to 10 classes and, and they had nowhere that, to live and that doesn't hello jim that, that uh, doesn't surprise me uh i've I raised this issue back in the sp- in the spring and um with uh, minister Byrne at that time uh, at that at that time he had indicated that you know the housing uh, situation for uh for ukrainian new- newcomers would be rectified itself when students moved out but knowing full well that students have to move in back in in september is not an answer but i met did meet with the university uh with uh, dr uh, yolanda potty sherman uh, uh, a couple of weeks ago and this is the very issue she's speaking of there are people right now they 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 are finding it difficult to uh, to have a place to live and they're actually at the stage well do i even come or do i move on but uh, it wouldn't surprise me that indeed you have uh, that there are students who've shown up and they have no place to live and uh, i don't know and i can tell you even in the news that was in this uh, in this morning but the four the uh, the four units that were burned in my district the first thought that comes to my mind, Linda, is I don't know where they're going to stay. 
um, it's set tight, and uh, and it's and and more importantly, where they're going to stay, that's affordable. That's the other part of it. So I think um, what, uh, if nothing else, uh, tomorrow night, it's not the answer. I should point out this is not the solution, uh, but it's about hearing um, hearing from people and maybe uh, and looking at where where I need what else I need to be saying and what else I need to be doing when I'm speaking to this, this, these issues. So I'm hoping for that conversation and um, people can come with what their solutions are just to vent uh, on their own experiences and uh, we, we walk out of there hopefully with, uh, uh, with uh, a, a path forward as well or at least uh, ideas that I can bring forward. Jim Din, thanks so much. No, that's about it though. All right, thank you. Bye-bye. Um, appreciate it. We're going to go now to uh, Mike Maloney. You're on the air. Hello, Mike. Hello. How are you? All right, Linda. A, a voice from the past. Yes, indeed. Uh, years ago, I was talking to you about Beachy Cove Road and Torscope on, on open line. And we still have that same problem up here today. Up here today, our road is deplorable. You can go to Mr. John Abbott. Now, he's the new Minister of Transportation. I think Mr. Fury just put him in there as a figurehead because he knows nothing about roads. I asked him to come up on Beachy Cove Road with me a month ago. I drive him up my vehicle, show him the road and everything else. No response. No, he didn't have time, and he wasn't leaving his property. So today, our road is up here now. We got. He says they got no equipment to do the road. There's no grader upper. The last time they done a road here on the southern shore was a, uh, a loader come down from uh, Vermeuse or Renews and they back, back graded the whole road with a, a loader. They have no equipment to do the roads. This is a class three road as we got past years ago when Mr. Williams and Mr. Sullivan were in power back then, the PC government, and it's an emergency exit road for the southern shore. There was an accident last year out in Torskov, and a man, a young man got struck by two vehicles while he was crossing the road. And all the traffic was directed into Beachy Cove Road and come out from one side to the other, from the Brown Rabbit to Route 10 on the other side, or from Route 10 to the Brown Rabbit to go up the southern shore. Anyhow, I was down on the road, and I counted, and I marked down every vehicle went by. There was three transport trucks, and there was 252 vehicles total went in over our road at that time. Now, the road is deplorable. It's unreal. You can't even go in. Yeah, there's places you can't. you got to just crawl over it. If you had time, I'd bring you up, and I'd show you the road, and then you'd know what I'm talking about. So what are you looking for? A little attention there? Some pavement? Uh, reworking the whole uh, road? We're, what? we're not looking for pavement. We're looking for the road to be upgraded. Grade it, put fill on the road. All he does is come in and grade one row if they grade it or back drags it with a loader. They're grading the fill is on one road, on one side of the road over to the other. And that's not, they're not putting nothing on it. There's rocks in our road now. You goes over. Big old ball rocks. They're there. And they're, they don't bring no equipment in to take these rocks, big rocks out. 
you you got to roll over them and take your time. That's and how long is, is the road? Uh, how many people uh, uh, make use of it? There's more people on Beachy Cove Road and Schoolhouse Road. That's another road off of in Torch Cove and Woodpath Road than is in the community of Torch Cove. We've done a census back in 2006, and uh, there's more people living on the school road or on these roads than is in the community of Torscove itself. Now, we're all classified as Torscove area, right? Torscove community, right? You know, but there's a lot of liviers in here now, and the government don't want to seem to do nothing about it. Nothing at all. You can phone the uh, Department of Highways in Torscove. No, we got no equipment to do nothing with. You know, all they're worried is about is salt and sand in the wintertime, and they're getting ready now for salt and sand or dump trucks to uh, start for frost and, and uh, black ice on the roads in the wintertime. You know, they got no greater in there, up here at all now. And uh, last year we were asking them about bringing up a greater. Their greater was over in Bell Island. They only have one other greater on the Avalon Peninsula. You know, our taxpayers' monies goes to uh, whenever you buy a litre of gas, there's so much money goes to roads, but it's not going to this area. Mike, I'm glad you raised this uh, issue yet again, as you say, over the years. Uh, yes. Appreciate your call. We'll see what others have to say about it. Thank you very much. See, I have one other topic to bring up. Oh, very quickly now, because we're up to a break. Uh, what about the 709 area code? Yeah. There's nobody talking on Newfoundland and Labrador on the open line or anything about much about that. That's a part of our history, the 709 area code. You you think we, we should be allowed to keep that 709 area code? What do you mean? Um, I'm you know, the government has got uh, Bella Line, whoever's in charge of that now is going to change the area code to 879 or something. Oh, I'm not aware of that. That's uh, right, first right I've heard of it. That's supposed, to, that's supposed to come into effect in sometime in November, I think. Oh, I was not aware of that. They're well, adding an extra number? Pardon? They're adding an extra number? No, they're not adding an extra number. They're doing away with the area code 709, and they're going to change it to a new area code, I think is 879. Oh. That shouldn't be allowed. That's part of our history. Unless they're adding 879 in addition to 709. No, I don't think so. I think they're t doing away with 709 altogether and giving us a whole new area code across the province of Newfoundland and Labrador. All right. It seems to me that uh, 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 normally they add um, um, area codes instead of eliminating other area codes, if you know what I mean. Uh, yeah, I but anyway, if anyone sure. knows for certain, well, they can let us know. Check into it. Yeah. Check into it, and you'll see something about it. Yeah. But if you're available sometime, give me a call, and I'll take you up for some uh, bake apple cheesecake and blueberry cheesecake, and I'll take you out and show you Beachy Cove Road. Well, that sounds lovely. <laughs> <laughs> Enjoy your berry I picking. I, yes, there's not many berries on the go this year. I'll no, there's wait. not. No, there's not. No. Mike, uh, appreciate uh, your thank call. Thank you very much, my love, for right. your listening to me. Thank you very much. Okay, have All a right. great day. You too.
Bye-bye. Uh, and we're going to take a short break. When we come back, we hope to hear from you. Uh, now is your chance to give us a call. And we're back, Linda Swain, in for Patty Daly. And as I um, as I suspected, uh, they're going to be adding an additional area code to Newfoundland and Labrador. With the proliferation, of course, of uh, mobile phones, uh, cell phones and the like, um, they're going to have to add another area code for all the new numbers that we're going to need. So uh, anyone who has a 709, I would expect they'll probably keep that. And anyone who gets a new phone after a certain date um, will have this new area code, um, 879. I believe. So, uh, yeah, that's um, usually how things work. Well, we're going to go now to Lindy. You're on the air. Hi, Lindy. Good morning. How are you this morning? Uh, I'm, I'm falling asleep. <laughs> <laughs> that's how long I've been waiting. Oh, dear. Oh, dear. Well, you're on the line now. So, anyway, I'm calling about the uh, arterial route in Cornerbrook, the overpass on Upper Road. Right. You know all about that. But uh, what I'm trying to say is that... Uh, there's a problem or something, whatever it is, according to what I got from City Hall, with the uh, the uh, expansion joint in the in the overpass. All right. And it's been like it. It's been like it now for at least a year. And the uh, area leading down to the mill, that section of of the overpass, is closed. Okay. So I was wondering, uh, according to what the city, the city was saying, there hasn't been a contract uh, let to to do the repairs. So it's going to sit like that for the next little while, uh, it, it, according to that. According to the city, it's, it's, it's been sitting for a year. Yeah. And according to what I'm led to understand, there's another one down in uh, down in Curling. No, I was talking to someone about that one. I don't know where where's that, but somewhere down in Curling, there's another one. Same thing. So what's the problem there? Uh, the According to what the city is saying, it's the expansion joint in the overpass. Right. And that goes out towards towards leading down the, uh, the uh, route towards the mill. And that's been closed for at least a year. So what's the holdup then? I mean, why would uh, something like this take that long? Don't know. No idea. Just the side of there, you've got to go down down through and go out on Umber Road and down underneath the overpass to go to the mill. Right. Uh, and no word on when this might get fixed? Nope. None. And like I said, according to what the city was saying, there's not even a tender out for it. To do the repairs. Do, who owns that road? Is it uh, the municipality, that's, that's, the province, the mill? The government, yeah, the province. Okay. Um, I called the premier's office this morning, and uh, I got an answer that they will call me back. So maybe I can find something else out, but uh, right now, that's where it stands. Right, so it sounds like it's a little more complicated than uh, meets the eye. Uh, maybe we can uh, try and get somebody with the city of Corner Brook on to uh, try and yeah, provide some answers there. All the rest of the overpass, and then they just they close that lane. Like I said, that's been like it for a year. And no word on when it might reopen. And nothing. That is sound. All right, Lindy, we'll see if we can get some answers on that. 
Yeah, and, you know, we, we're supposed to have the government representatives in here, but I don't know where they're at. All right, I appreciate that, Lindy. We'll see what we can do. Okay, thank you. All Bye-bye. right, thank you. Bye-bye. We're going to go now to uh, Ruby. You're on the air. Hi, Ruby. Hi. How are you? Hello. Yes, you're on the air. Can you hear me? Yes, I can. You're on the air. Go right ahead. Can you hear me, Linda? All right. She's having trouble hearing us, um, uh, Dave, for some reason. Uh, if you want to try and um, figure that out for us, we're going to go now to call her on line one. Hello? Hello? Call her on line one. Oh, yes. Uh, Linda. Yes. Thank you. Thank you for taking my call. Um, I, I just have a couple of points to, um, in, in response to uh, Brenda Kitchen uh, was on a bit earlier. Right. And, uh, and, and they've developed a, a website, Protect Newfoundland at Outlook. Do you know if that's, what, what that, that was, .ca or .com? Let me see now. I jotted it down. Uh, Protect NL at Outlook.com. Okay. Um, one, in all the conversations uh, um, that have been ongoing, I have not heard um, any any real uh, health concerns expressed in in any of the conversations, and I was just wondering if it's hello. Meant oh. here's. There's a documentary uh, called Downwind-Windfarm Documentary. Have you, have you seen that or read it? No, I'm not familiar with that at all. Uh, I, it, it's, a really, it's a really good documentary. Um, and, and leading away from that is ongoing in the province, I mean, there's... Uh, uh, the health accord has just been well, just been released and is being implemented, and they're all about determinants of health. Uh, I would expect if government is really serious about uh, about uh, the determinants of health, uh, they would be looking at. Um, at the information that is out there regarding some of the health effects of people that live near those those wind farms and and not that I'm negative about them uh but I think that people should be aware of the experience of other people and put in the proper checks and balances what I think a big part of this conversation is all about is that the people who are most concerned about it and have very serious, very legitimate questions that they want answered, they feel like they're not getting the answers or the answers are not forthcoming or that their voices are not being heard uh, or that the processes are not there for their voices to be heard, if you know what I'm saying. There's a whole pile of uh, issues there that are making people distrustful of the entire process. Well, that's what I'm. Well, that's certainly what I'm. I'm. I'm hearing, you know. And uh, but this documentary, and as far as I know, it is quite legitimate. It is. It is uh, consists of uh, people with lived experiences that's near there. There's health professionals. There's doctors. 
uh, speaking on it. There's engineers that give their... The documentary is, is, is really, I would think, and I'm not saying that I'm an expert or anything like that, but this documentary is really, to me, is really good. And if the province... Is, Someone should look at it and see, because it's really, um, you know, it, it it really goes into how it's affecting people's health, and and there are well, even it even brings in Health Canada's uh, experience to date, and they're doing research, and they don't have answers. So it, it's a documentary that I'd really love to have a discussion on, or, or hear it being uh, discussed in, in, and add it to this conversation. <laughs> Well, I'm so glad you called this morning to bring it to our attention and see if there's others out there who have had a, a look at this documentary and, and would like to discuss it with us as well. I, I really appreciate your time this morning. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank Alrighty. You. Bye. Bye-bye. Um, we're up to news time now. When we come back, we've uh, reestablished contact with Ruby, uh, so we'll hear from her, and we'd like to hear from you as well. We have lines open. Now is your opportunity to give us a call. Nutrition, exercise, keeping the cold at bay. Whatever keeps you feeling great, the Wellness and Healthy Lifestyle Show on your VOCM. And we're back on VOCM Open Line. Linda Swain in for Patty Daly, who is off today. We're going to give Ruby another try. Hi, Ruby. Can you hear us now? Yes, I can. Thank you, Linda. And I'm sorry, but uh, I don't know what happened. I put you on entry and I didn't get you. Oh, very good. No trouble at all. What's on your mind? Well, I I want to echo what Glenn and uh, Jim, your two previous callers, uh, were talking about with the omelets. Now, the omelets for me are the addiction and the mental health. And I have been doing everything I can humanly do to help those people. But I'm not having very much success in finding homes for them because there are no homes. There are no vacant places in the city that they can rent within a budget. There might be some that if you could come up with $2,500 a month or something, you might be able to get it. But that's not uh, the budget that those people can help. And so that's bringing us now to the cold, hard winter for those people that are out sleeping in under parking garages and wherever they can find a bit of heat, going in the hospital and getting warm and coming out to live in the street again. These are the very vulnerable people that we need to be worried about this winter. And health-wise, mental health and addictions plays a role. So I have not heard from government within the last three weeks uh, we prior to that, I met with them twice, and I did talk to one of the ministers as much as three different times. And I was assured that things were happening, movements were on the go, and I've waited. But in the past couple of weeks, I had nothing, so I can't tell the public where we're going, what's happening. I don't know. But I'm not prepared to shut up. I will follow. Like, I have packed bags of clothes that have been distributed by one of our outreach to 
some of the onglers with some long cans, some coats and things like that that I've gathered up. But that's not enough. They're going to need sleeping bags. They're going to need some backpacks. They're going to need a place to call home. So what government is doing right now to make that happen, I don't know. I can't publicly tell anybody. I don't know where the all-party committee is to at this time. I don't know if it's put together and they're working on it. I've not been informed. So I can't let the people that I'm doing, all of these things that I'm trying to do for them, the answers. I don't have it. So we are now in nearly the 1st of October. If we're lucky, we won't have snow till probably December. But I don't know that. Nobody know that. But no, that but it was chilly fun. last night, I guarantee. We ha- we almost had frost in some areas. So well, it is getting colder at night. You just think about those people with no blankets and no heavy coats, no boots, and no probably wet socks from all day. And they have no place to crawl in at all. That's the vulnerable people I'm thinking about. Yes, there's families out there that my heart goes out to as well that can't find an affordable place to live. We see it and we hear it every day. But something has to change. Those here B&Bs, God loved them. They had them because they took their homes and turned it into Airbnbs because they could make more money. And that meant that the family of three or four got a notice and had to move out, and they're probably sleeping in their car. I heard from one lady that said her and her husband and her five-year-old daughter were sleeping in their car because they couldn't afford to pay the rent. I guess this is what's happening. And The only one that can put a stop to things like that is government. Well, I I don't know about you, Ruby, but I know myself driving around uh, town, for instance, uh, the number of uh, uh, housing units, and I don't know if it's the city or if it's the province or if it's both, but the number of housing units that I've seen just driving around boarded up. Uh, it is quite shocking. I, I was um, somewhere in town the other day, and I counted seven properties that were boarded up just from one point to another point that I was driving through. Seven. So, so there you go. There's 77 homes that could take probably 20 people or 25 people, whether they come off the streets or whether they come out of their cars. And somebody, whether it's the city, I don't know, and I'm not blaming government for not doing anything. I know government has put more money into uh, our uh, into the justice system to help things that have gone on at their Majesty's Penitentiary, and I know they're putting an all-party committee together in which they're trying to bring people to help solve some of those problems and issues that we have, but we can't be dragging our feet It has to be done yesterday. And if people like myself that see this and know this is happening 
I see it every day. I am going out to my neighbors or to my friends. Okay, I saw a guy yesterday in the street. He has no jeans. He has no boots. He has no jacket. Do you have some that you can get? Then I'll bring it to the outreach. I don't go out in the street distributing things to to those homeless people. They have to feel safe in bringing the stuff to them. I'm not going to be talking to everyone that drops by. So I make sure that I get it, and I give it to an outreach to make sure that person has a coat or a blanket tonight. So there are many ways that we can try and help them until the day comes they won't have to live in the street. I don't know how long that will be, but I pray to God it will be sooner than later. And these, uh, a lot of these solutions... A lot of these solutions are not uh, quick overnight fixes. Some There might be some, uh, but a lot of the major issues are not quick overnight fixes. And it's, it, it's hard to see that kind of movement uh, when there's so many things that have to come together in order for them to happen. Um, but we're also dealing with, you know, the, the problem is, is not you know, one thing or another, it's, it's a variety of things. Uh, so, I mean, it's one thing for the, uh, to talk about the profusion of Airbnbs, but, uh, people also are getting squeezed with, um, you know, higher interest rates and the like. Um, the private sector is not necessarily the answer. Like you say, governments have to step up in order to f- provide housing, especially to the more vulnerable in society who, um, there are landlords out there who will take some of them in, but, other landlords say, you know what, I'm not getting the support either when I, when I uh, do house uh, people who come to me through social assistance or through some other program. You know what I mean? Uh, sometimes they feel like um, they're not getting the supports that they need. So, um, you know, it's a multi-pronged kind of approach, and I don't know if a, if a solution will be ready, like you say, in time for this coming winter. No, I'm as we're seeing it now. No, it's not going to be ready. But if there are houses boarded up in St. John's, and I hear you, and I've seen it, why? Why are there? If if there are people, whether they be students, international students, whether they be citizens of Canada or or St. John's or Newfoundland, it doesn't matter to me. Why isn't the city? Or the province, whoever is responsible for those houses, putting money in them and making them available for those people. And the minister has referenced that, and they're working on those things. But sometimes in in some of these cases, uh, the homes require more work than, than was anticipated. Well, I can see that, too. But a life is worth that. We can't have people freezing to death because of a few dollars that it's going to cost to fix those houses up. We're not asking for mansions. We're asking for livable houses, houses that people can live in. Uh, I know most people that took in, whether it's Ukrainian people or whoever, they filled their houses to, to take the people off the streets because they had nowhere to go. I know people that have done that. So why is government, uh, God loved them for helping them, and I'm probably one of the kindest people in the world when it comes to helping people. I don't care where they're from or what they need. If I can help, I'll help. But why are we bringing in 
more than we can house, whether it be international students or whether it be people from Ukraine. It doesn't matter to me. Yeah, it seems like one hand doesn't know what the other hand is doing. That's what it seems like to me. And you get people, I've seen a a mother with a child from Ukraine pleading because the hotel now has closed off. They have nowhere to live. Creating a bigger problem, yeah. We, exactly. Why did that, that happen? And then if we have seven or eight hundred more people that are homeless on the streets living, my God, we have a major problem. And somewhere, someone got step to the plate and try and correct this. Ruby, we have to leave and it there. I, I really appreciate your call this morning. Thank you very much. You're kind of welcome. All righty. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. Uh, when we come back after the break, we're going to speak with uh, the leader of the opposition, David Brazel. see what he has to say about these uh, uh, discussions in Quebec right now. This is VOCM Open Line. The number's to call right after this. And we're back. And I just wanted to raise this issue. A listener reached out and said uh, that they were in contact with a denturist recently as they are desperately in need for a plate replacement. And uh, while they do qualify for the adult dental program, they were informed by the denturists uh, that they were not accepting MCP clients at this time as the Newfoundland and Labrador denturists were currently involved in contract negotiations with MCP. And this uh, listener wanted to know, uh, wondering if there's any news on this or if any of your listeners know anything about this situation. So that's very curious indeed. If anybody happens to know, uh, they can certainly give us a call. We're going to go now to the leader of the official opposition, David Brazel. Hello. Good morning, uh, Linda, and to all your listeners. Thank you for this opportunity. Well, thanks for joining us. So uh, it, it appears as though there's a lot going on, or there has been a lot going on in Quebec of well, recent is, days. <laughs> before we get to, uh, I guess, the information that's not being shared by our own government, but is being shared by the government of Quebec, uh, I want to go back to uh, your previous caller, Ruby, and, and echo what she's saying about the challenges that we have in this province, uh, particularly we're, we're, we're at a crisis level now with with, uh, you know, safe, affordable housing in Newfoundland, Labrador. We've said it. Uh, I've, I've done some media the last number of weeks, and my critic has done the same. I mean, there's 200 Newfoundland, Labrador housing units that are boarded up, and there's professional people in Newfoundland, Labrador housing ready to go to get these ready for people. As Ruby said, the winter's coming on very quickly, but they're not resourced. The government are not giving them the resources to do this properly. That's one immediate uh, approach to getting certain things done, and there's a multitude of other things that need to be done. And it's not pointing the finger, but this has been happening for the last number of years, and there's been very little d- d- done to address this issue. So, you know, I want to tell Ruby and the other people who are struggling out there, uh, we're here to support whatever is necessary. Whatever the government needs to do, we'll support it, because this is a crisis issue again, as is health care and as is the cost of living. So just want to let Ruby and everybody else out there know who are doing great work. Uh, we're here to support in whatever way possible uh, to alleviate this, this stress on people. For Thank certain, and I want to explore that just for a little bit while longer, because it is a very important issue, and it's affecting an awful lot of people, as we all know. 
Uh, you said that 200 NLHC uh, homes currently boarded up or properties per currently boarded up, but you say they're not getting the resources they need? What do you mean by that? Well, Newfoundland Labrador Housing would need, you know, millions of dollars more in their budget lines to be able to, to uh, contract either private contractors or their own uh, to bring these units up to par or to do whatever need renovations need to be done to make them accessible. In some cases, they may modify them instead of a, a three-bedroom uh, home that's no longer necessary because of the changes in the demographic of a family. Uh, they can make them for single-unit homes as part of this process. So there's a multitude of things that could be done here and should have been done uh, had the resources been given to Newfoundland Labrador Housing. I know, you know, they put plans in in the past asking government to give them the resources to do particular things to make more affordable housing available to people. Uh, and obviously that's getting stalled. I don't know if it's in legislation because if it is, you know, we'll put it out to the Minister of Housing. We'll put it out to the Premier. We'll jump back in the House of Assembly as the official opposition. And in one day, we'll do whatever it takes to change legislation so that the um, resources can be given to Newfoundland Labrador Housing and that they can move forward to making sure that the housing units are available for the people of this province. 200 housing units will certainly make a big difference. Big time. And they're, and they're all over this province. They're in the East Coast here, in the urban centers. They're out in the Corner Brooks and the West Coast. And they're on the Northern Peninsula and in Labrador also. So there's, you know, a real opportunity to do something immediately. That won't solve every issue, but at least there's a, a part process here to address the 200 families or more, depending on the size of the units uh, that could be done, and then look at what our bigger strategy is here and start moving those uh, a lot quicker. Now, the Upper Churchill. Well, you know, again, uh, I've been on a f you know, few weeks ago, I think we spoke about this, and I get more and more bewildered and confused because we keep hearing from our government, the minister and the premier, that, oh, they're sitting back waiting, there's nothing being negotiated, yet we're hearing from the premier of Quebec. And I'll, I'll say, you know, there, there's an old saying, you hear somebody say something once, it's a rumor. They say something a second time, you should listen a little bit closer, maybe there's something to it. But a third time, and they start giving facts, then maybe there's some truth to the story. We're at the fourth time that the Premier of Quebec is saying that negotiations are going well, that he's in a good place, he's happy about what's happening. He's talking about Upper Churchill. Now he's saying about a fifth turbine, uh, well underway in the work to get that up and running. He's talking about Gull Island negotiations, and we've heard nothing from our government in Newfoundland Labrador, the Liberal government here, and the Premier of Newfoundland Labrador about what's happening. Uh, we get the, the response that, oh, we're waiting to see, almost like he's waiting for uh, a contract to come from Quebec or an offer. I mean, you don't get offers. You go in. We own that asset. The people of this province own that asset. You go in and say, here are my terms. We're open for business as long as the beneficiaries are going to be the people of this province. We need to know if, if uh, the, the Hydro-Quebec and the government of Quebec are negotiating. Are the federal government involved? I mean, is the prime minister involved, a Quebec MP, who obviously, uh, you know, his time may be numbered here, would be in favor with Quebec than he would be more with Newfoundland and Labrador? Is that in the best interest of the people of Newfoundland and Labrador? Have no qualms in saying we're open for business to negotiate as long as we know what's happening and the beneficiaries are going to be the people of this province. Do we know who's going to fund the situation? What are the partnerships? How, are, how is employment going to be done? Are the trade unions in Newfoundland and Labrador and the contractors here going to get to bid and get the, the people get the bulk of the work here? Or is it going to be Quebec firms? Or is it going to be other provinces' firms here? So there's a multitude of things here that we're hearing, and it's not even speculation anymore. Uh, again, when you say it the fourth time by an entity who publicly says it, then who's 
you know, at the grassroots level of negotiating, the Premier of Quebec, how can we be confident that we're going to get any deal that's beneficial to the people of this province here? So I'm not quite sure who's negotiating. The Premier says there are no negotiations, yet he set, struck a committee to do it. The Premier of Quebec says, oh, they're well along, and he's even noting certain things that we're, we weren't aware of that would be part of the negotiations and who may or may not be partners as part of this process. Isn't only fair to the people of this province a bit of openness, a bit of transparency, more importantly, a bit of hope that at the end of the day, uh, somewhere there's going to be a deal that rectifies the 55 years of injustice that was done with the Upper Churchill deal in a new deal. We're not saying that uh, you know Quebec are the bad guys here, but we're saying let's negotiate in good faith. You can't negotiate in good faith if you're the ones sort of writing on the bottom line exactly what's going to be the deal that they're going to present to us. That's not how this should work, and I would hope uh, this government would stand up and, and fight for the people of this province. If they don't, I guarantee you, we in the opposition will do that for them. The Premier has repeatedly said he won't negotiate in public, and yet, uh, as you say, uh, Francois Legault has no no problems with that. He, he divulged quite a bit of uh, detailed information in French uh, to Quebec media yesterday, and uh, even uh, Premier Fury indicated, well, he's a little further ahead <laughs> uh, than um, than we are at this stage. Um, but he's also indicated, Premier Fury, that uh, no negotiations on um, Gull Island can take place without the Innu present. But um, it 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 almost sounds like Quebec is well ahead on that. One hundred percent. And I was going to note, too, that the indigenous communities that we've talked to have had no contact with uh, with anybody engaged. But again, when it's the fourth time that the premier of Quebec has said about what's happening with Gull Island, then I'm led to believe that there is something happening. The problem here is that the premier of Newfoundland and Labrador is not engaged and he hasn't lived up to his commitment to ensure that the indigenous communities in Labrador would be engaged also. So, I mean, that's obviously uh, going to be an issue for them and rightfully so, and as it should be for all Newfoundlanders and Labrador. Labradorians uh, on what's going on here. So, I mean, Premier's got to get be open and transparent with the people here uh, and be straight. Either force push back to the Premier of Quebec and say, these are our assets. Either we negotiate a good deal and we do it in private uh, manner so that we know it. you can't be out in, if you're in the media negotiating, or are you negotiating or you're telling the media what you've already uh, put in play. And if that's put in play without the input of the uh, Premier of Newfoundland Labrador and the Indigenous community and the people of this province, then I have a real problem here. We're destined to fail again as we did in 69 on a uh, go-forward basis that would have been great for the next generation and future generations for this province. Opposition Leader David Brazel, we have to leave it there. We're up to news time, but I really appreciate your input this morning. Thank you so much. Thank you, Linda. Take care. Alrighty. Bye-bye. And we are up to news time now with Allison King. This is VOCM Open Line. Now is your opportunity to give us a call. Saturday morning, join us for the Irish Newfoundland Show. Send your request to irishnl at vocm.com or submit them online at vocm.com. And we're back into the final half hour of the program. We're going to go now to Paul Shea. You're on the air. Hi, Paul. Hi, how are you? I'm grand. How are you? Wonderful, wonderful. I'm, I'm, I'm a bit uh, a bit miffed, to say the least, uh, with uh, an airline that uh, a family member flew from Alberta to Newfoundland on here back a month and a half ago. Uh, they traveled with a, a newborn, four-month-old newborn, and uh, they checked a stroller that they bought in Alberta, uh, an ex- ex- really expensive uh, stroller because she knew she was going to make several trips because uh, she's coming home to visit family because of illness. And uh, they pretty much 
hounded the living daylights out of this this stroller. Oh dear! And, and yeah, and uh, I mean, it, 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 just under well, I mean, just under a thousand dollars that they paid for it because she knew she was going to be traveling home assisted, but traveling back alone with the baby, right? So, uh, so she's getting no sense out of out of uh, the airline about the damage done to it. Uh, the stroller now is is rickety. Uh, she she doesn't even know now if it's safe to put the child in, right? No, of course not. With those kinds of things, they usually recommend that you not use them at all. Right, exactly. And she's not getting no satisfaction from the airline about the damage. It's like, okay, we'll stop here and stop there. But this this is not something that was bought ten years ago. This is something that was bought five months ago, right? And she's only just starting to travel with it. And I'm just wondering if other people are having. The same kind of problems with uh, the disregard to private or, or you know personal objects that are being shipped back and forth on the airline. First of all, it didn't even show up. So luckily, we had they had the car seat that they could put the baby in. But uh, the other part of the stroller and everything that they had checked didn't show up for two days. Wow! So she couldn't even get around. Really, you can't go lugging a car seat around with you everywhere you go. No, no, and of course, you know, she she stayed at home for the first couple of days till it finally showed up. That that's the first thing. The second thing is, when they left Alberta, before they left Alberta, uh, she knew she was going to be traveling back by herself. So they prepaid uh, uh, for a convenient seat or specialty seat or whatever it was, and she paid prepaid for the seat, uh, sixty bucks or something so that she could have leg room for the baby and everything else traveling back. Somewhere between the time she left Alberta and the time she was going to get ready to go back, uh, they changed the seat on her. They didn't, change, they didn't change the airplane. They didn't change the configuration of the seats in the airplane. They just took her out of the seat that she had paid for and put her in a middle aisle seat with a, with a child that is breastfeeding. Now, as it turned out, she was able to... Uh, with another family member traveling back, ended up in the seats with, with the other family member that, that was going to be conducive to her travel. But the, the airline was like, well, you should have checked your email. Oh, and they, they billed her twice for it. They billed her the second time. How nice. Yeah, and and the girl said to her, the girl said to her, well, you would have known you never had the the, uh, the convenient seating when you got on the airplane. Well, what, what nonsense is that? So um, you say she got no satisfaction when it came to the damage done to the stroller. Um, what do you mean? Have they not acknowledged that the damage was done or uh, will they not pay for it? Because I know somebody who uh, had recent travel and their uh, luggage got absolutely smashed to bits. And, uh, and I believe they've already gotten paid for that. No, they haven't. They haven't offered one penny restitution. No. Wow. Does she have her bills and everything for the stroller? Oh, I would imagine, yes. I mean, it's not. Uh, she only bought it back in when well, the baby was born in April. Yeah, because they usually require, you know, like, can you show us some pictures of the damage? Can you show us how much it's valued at? You know, those kinds of things. So as yeah. long as she's got the documentation, one would think she should be able to get some kind of compensation for that. Yes, I'm just wondering if other people get in. Because they're, they're treating this like as if, if this is a... You know, oh, well, that's just normal wear and tear, but it's not normal wear and tear. Right. Like you say, it's wobbly. 
Yeah. 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 And a $1,000 um, stroller shouldn't be wobbly. Hey. No. <laughs> well, um, with any luck now, she gets some satisfaction, but you're raising an important point. I'd like to see if others have been similarly affected. Yeah, I mean, you know, it, it, and, and, the fa- and, that, and then on top of that, put her in a middle oil seat. What, what kind of nonsense is that when she paid for the seat and then billed her the second time? Now, she got that straightened out, but she was on the phone like for two and a half hours to get that straightened out. Yeah, uh, uh, it, it is a lot of hassle. Uh, I have to say, I, I've heard similar types of stories of people who have traveled and uh, uh, some who vow they'll never travel again. <laughs> um, I really appreciate your call this morning, Paul. Thank you. Thank you very much. Alrighty. Bye-bye. We are going to go now to uh, Elizabeth Panashaway. Hello, Elizabeth. Hello. Yeah. How are you this yeah, morning? Good, good. Good to hear. What's on your mind? Uh, <clears throat> I, I was going uh, to talk about long time. I'm worried about my English. My English is not very good. That's yeah. fine. You go right ahead. I was going to talk about, uh, I'm thinking why why nobody talk about anymore the land, like uh, like Mascot Falls, Church of Falls, Boise's Bay. And, as a, and I'm thinking, I'm concerned. I'm thinking, why? There's a lot of people, my people, speak good English, women and Eno. And I know myself, I'm not very good speaking English, but I was wait, wait long time. I was going to say something about what I want to say. Now I can't, I can't wait anymore. I'm going to try. I'm going to try to say, to say what I want to say. I heard, I heard on the radio or on the news sometimes, uh, the government talk about again, just like, um, just like she's going to start Start again, Muscat Falls, Go Island, and the people, the people, I don't know how many years, the people always together, always together. Uh, what should I say? Always together, talk about uh, everything, what's going, what's happened, what's happened, uh, what's going to happen, Go Island. Right, and there was just a um, there was just a huge gathering of Inu at Gull Island, which is a yeah. traditional gathering place. Yeah, a lot of people. Yeah, it's a lot of people. Very busy every day. Very busy, and um, and uh, I'm very concerned. Why? Why the government? He, he never stopped. He never stopped what he done. Our land, Boise's Bay. And Muscat Falls, Churchill Falls. I don't want to see happen again. Like many, many years ago, the government when she start uh, when she start uh, Churchill Falls about them. And uh, and uh, nobody knows. He never asked the people what he done. And he knew people. He he didn't know. Because nobody asked, 
I don't want to see happen again. And uh, I said to myself, that's enough, enough what he'd done, the government, our land. It's thousand, thousand years, you know, people here, Shehajid and Natoajish, hunting. And if the government don't stop, what what's going to happen to children? I'm very concerned. What's going to happen to children? So many, many, many children, Shehajid and Natoajish. And... Uh, a lot of people, so many people died, passed away, old people and old men. Only my age, just a few, just a few people, I got to do some. We got to do something before before I'm gone. Right. So you because remember well the impact of the uh, flooding of the Smallwood Reservoir. You remember that. There were uh, Inu communities there that uh, no longer exist. They're underwater now. So, yeah. And it, you know the impact. Yeah. I know everything. I was, uh, I was very young. Stay in, in a country with my family. And it's not only me. A lot of people and a lot of old people stay in the country. And I heard people say sometimes, she talk about the fish. It's not only fish. It's all kind of animals. All kind of animals, they want to die. Or, or maybe die already. Because I went many, many years canoe trip to the river. And one evening, when we stopped canoeing, we put the tent, got some rest. And my children, my grandchildren, playing on the beach. And then she found a fish. And he 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 called me, Grandma, Grandma, what happened? What happened? This fish, he died. I found in the water. I just uh, I feel so sad. So sad that I want to cry, explain my grandchildren what happened that fish. And mercury on the water. I remember when I was young, people, you know, people, it's a good drink water everywhere. Now, couldn't, couldn't drink water to the river anymore. That's, uh, that's, I'm very concerned. That's why, that's why I was start many, many years protect the land, protect the animals, protect my people and the children. We went canoe trip. I'm walking in, in the spring in, in, in a country one month with my people and the children. That's, I thought the government, she's gonna, I thought the government, she's going to see me, she's going to change a little bit, she's, she's going to stop what you've done our land. And just like you don't see me, what I'm doing, I protect the land, I protect the animals, my people, and the children. What's going to happen to the children when everything's gone? Look, boys, is very... People hunting the fish, all kind of animals, caribou, all kind of animals. 
maybe she's not going to be good aunt anymore. And and she had to have a door. I seen that when I go to uh, when I go to uh, God Falls. I just want crying when I look that river. I remember when I was young, people hunting there. That's when I'm very concerned, and I remember, I remember, I think I'm not sure, maybe I'm wrong. Uh, 1998, I think, oh, women's, women's, Stand up and speak. We should do same thing again. Yes, I remember it well. And they yeah. spoke and they were heard. Mm-hmm. N- now, I'm very concerned what's going to happen to government if nothing to change. Just like a government, he think nobody here. I can do everything what I want to do. This is our land, not the government. This is how we learn. And I'm thinking, I hope you understand what I'm saying. I'm talking about all people and all men. So many, so many died, passed away. Only my age, just a few people. We, we sh- I got to do something to help, to help the children. And what happened animals? Animals, like he, people, when he drink water, he wants to drink a clean water. Maybe same animals, same thing. Animals everywhere. He wants to drink a clean water. All kind of animals. And every time when I go to the falls, I see him just make me sad. I'm thinking. I'm thinking when I was young, when I was young, and never, never see uh, that uh, what happened at Georgia Falls. Same thing when I go on a trip. When I go on a trip, I show the children, I explain. There's a big sign on the beach, big, big sign. And I read, I'm read, it's Inuit, English, and French, and Eno, and then I explained to the children not not to eat the fish one week, maybe just twice. Uh, I never, never see that when I was young. We went thousand, thousand miles with my parents walking, uh, walking in the country. My parents hunting. I never, never see sign this sign. I explain the children when I go on trip and my grandchildren. I was very, very sad. And uh, I hope you understand what I'm saying. There's a big sign on the beach, not to eat the fish. And a paper, uh, English, French, Inu, Inuit. And I can I know how to read Eno, and then I'm read. That's very, very, I'm very, very sad. Yeah. What happened? 
Elizabeth, uh, I, I uh, unfortunately we're up to a, another break now, but I I, I do appreciate appreciate your call, and uh, I think I hear what you're saying. How much things have changed for the Inu, uh, all your life, never having to encounter a sign telling you actually not to eat the fish, because of changes that have happened uh, to your land, and I, I really appreciate uh, your call this morning. Okay, I hope you understand. My English not very good. I hope you understand what I what I'm saying. I I thank you very much. Yo, thank you. Alrighty, bye bye. Uh, Elizabeth Panashwe there, uh, Inu elder, well-respected um, um, recipient of the Order of Newfoundland and Labradora, if uh, memory serves. Um, anyway, anybody with thoughts on what she's had to say, by all means, do give us a call. We're going to take a short break. When we come back, we hope to hear from you. And Prime Minister Justin Trudeau says he expects that House of Commons Speaker Anthony Rota is reflecting on how to maintain dignity in the chamber ahead of a meeting later today with all party House leaders. Expected that to happen in the next hour and a half or so. Trudeau says it is good that Rota apologized to Parliament for inviting and recognizing in the House a Ukraine military veteran now living in Canada who had served in a Nazi unit during the Second World War. All members Members of Parliament stood and applauded 98-year-old Yaroslav Hunka last Friday during the official visit by Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky without knowing the details of his past. Trudeau says the mistake is deeply embarrassing. Rota is to meet with House leaders at noon today. That's uh, Ottawa time after both the NDP and Bloc Québécois called for him to resign on Monday. And I see that um, uh, Foreign Affairs Minister Melanie Jolie also urging uh, Rota to step down. We're going to go now to Betty. You're on the air. Hi, Betty. Hi. Hello. Hi, Betty. Jean Hines here. I'm calling from Stephenville. I want to talk to you. The the basics of life for everyone is a place to live and food to eat and hopefully a job. Uh, uh, it doesn't have to be fancy. It doesn't have to be big. It's just a place where you can lock yourself in and the world out. There seems to be such a difference between the rich and the poor. Like years ago, everybody was all kind of poor. But you have places now that are building extravagant, ex- more extravagant homes that half the time, if you win it, you can't even afford to heat it because it's so big. So my issue is, like, why can't they, instead of building the big, big extravagant ones, why can't they build some more modest homes where like somebody could win a two or three hundred thousand dollar home if you had ten people win that it would be better than one person winning you know what I mean like it's just so so extravagant when there's so much poverty and people really don't have a lot of time food to eat and they don't have a roof over their head so there's there seems to be such a difference from the rich and the poor you're talking about uh, what uh, people who are building their own homes, or are you talking about like show homes that are being built for they're, charities? They're building, they're building show homes for. That's what I'm telling you. It's like instead of the building the big show homes, why don't they give like maybe um, three or four homes that give three or four people a chance to win? I see what you're saying. Yeah. 
And not only that, it doesn't only have to be, you know, like in St. John's. It would be any place across the province because, it's like I'm saying, like people are not looking for million-dollar homes. And they're not looking for prime rib. All they want is a place, like I said, that they can call their own, that they can feel safe, that they can be their self, and like I said, be able to afford it and be able to pay their bills and feed their children. And stay warm, dry, and... Uh, Absolutely. And safe. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Betty, uh, you've had the last word on open line today. Unfortunately, we're out of time, but I, I do appreciate your call. Thank you very much. Thank you. And I hope, I hope some people think about maybe making a few changes so, so that more poor people will have an opportunity to progress forward. All right. Thank you very much. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. And Betty's had the last word today. Wow, what a show. Uh, lots to talk about and digest. If any of that struck a nerve with you and you want to give us a call tomorrow morning, our lines will be open uh, right at 9 for VOCM Open Line. I'll be at the helm again tomorrow. Uh, do join us then. In the meantime, this afternoon on News Talk, uh, Brian Callahan stepping in to help me out there. Thank you very much, Brian. Uh, so stay tuned for that. He's going to have lots to say, no doubt. Uh, We'll be back tomorrow. Thanks for listening.